Our Father, we come to you with praise to you for the beauty of this day. We thank you, Lord, for the change in the weather. And even though we don't anticipate the uh, more intense heat later, Father, we're, we're grateful for the beauty of, of, the, of the time right now. And Father, I, I pray that we will learn to be people who, as Paul said, to be content in whatever condition we find ourselves to know that you're with us, whether conditions seem to be difficult or whether they seem to be uh, easy. Father, may our trust be in you. And as we study through uh, this, these passages of Scripture this morning, I pray that we will learn the lesson that will be appropriate for each of us individually. Father, it's, it's an amazing thing to know that we can read the same passage of Scripture and come to uh, different applications because of our own individual needs and because of the omnipotence and the omniscience of the Spirit of God. And so we bow to you this morning. We're grateful for your promise to be present wherever your people are. And so we know you're here, Father, in a special way, not only because we each bear Christ within us, but as we gather together collectively, there seems to be so many promises in Scripture to indicate that you are moving to bring about your purpose. And Father, I pray that you will remove every hindrance from our minds and hearts, and you will bless the word as it's proclaimed throughout this campus today and around the world on this your day, in Christ's name, amen. Chapter 20 of Joshua, you probably have noted that it will not take us near as long to get through the book of Joshua as it has some others, but we're still working on it, it will be for a few more weeks. 20th chapter of Joshua. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. And he shall flee to one of these cities, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of the city, and they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and then until the death of the one who was high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they set apart Kedish in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness on the plain of the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them, that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. What, one of the things that you discover as you put any time into the study of history is that there has been a general, and I use the word evolution in its proper sense, having nothing to do with you know, biology in this sense, but the, the general change down through time 
has occurred where governments have a, had a tendency, to, of course, to become more sophisticated. That's not to say that ancient governments that existed, let's say, in Babylon uh, 4,000 years ago were not sophisticated. Uh, but they certainly didn't have the, the, the huge plethora of laws under which we rest because there weren't enough clay tablets to write them all down, for one thing. I mean, we can sandwich within the covers of one book enough material that would fill a room like this with clay tablets if you tried to uh, put it all down in cuneiform. But as you move from primitive tribes to sophisticated civilization, you discover that the number of laws that become explicit multiply uh, probably logarithmically. <laughs> Seems like it anyway. So what we're reading about here is a statement of God's grace, really. And we talk about the cities of refuge. It's overall a statement of God's grace. But it does give some details. And, and there were some questions la asked last time for which the scripture gives no answer. Simply because I suppose that for example, the scripture does not say, thou shalt appoint an avenger of blood for every community, you know, like as if that would be the chief of police or something like that. We, we don't have in the scripture a police force like we think of today. There, there's not a fire department like we have today. It was, it was a, a tribal existence with clans within the tribes and families within the clans, a typical sociology that you find all over the world. And within that pattern. There were many ways by which laws were, were um, unwritten, sort of like the British Constitution, which is not written down like ours is. It's a, it's a constitution that is based on, on precedent from hundreds of years of, of carrying on business. So there are many things that are unwritten within these more primitive tribes, but everybody knows what to do. You know, you, you go to some tribes like the primitive tribes of the North or African tribes, they, they have what are known as taboos. And, and your taboos are your unwritten laws that everybody in that society knows about, and they live according to it. And many of those laws have absolutely nothing that would violate the morality of Scripture. And so the concept of the avenger of blood was not something that was unique to Israel. And yet at the same time, it was nothing that violated the morality of Scripture. Because Scripture clearly taught, teaches, as we read last time, that the shedding of blood is only avenged or propitiated by the shedding of the blood of the one who shed the blood in the first place. And, and then, of course, this brings in God's grace and his justice altogether in the city of refuge. So what I'm trying to say here is that you're going to find, you, you can ask a lot of questions to which you will not find biblical answers. Because the Bible is dealing with issues of, of grace and morality and, and any kind of tribal custom that fit within that and didn't violate it was allowed to, to go on and wasn't necessarily God-originated, although God is, of course, the originator of the human race. Uh, so as we look at these events here, we understand that we can't always fathom what is behind what is being said here, at least not from the Scripture itself. And since the scripture is the only written record that we have of the ancient Hebrews, there isn't anywhere else you can turn, really, to find that information. In fact, the, the, the Hebrew nation is better documented than any other ancient society in the world. You do not have, like we have here, two-thirds of a Bible written about any society that lived before the time of Christ. I mean, even Rome, which is, is, mo uh, is much closer to this time, than much of the Hebrew history, we have Livy. 
Really, Livy is the only one who sort of covers the whole from the founding of Rome until the time of Christ. And most scholars look at Livy as having ha half of it being just made up, you know. And, and there are a few others that fill in there. So we have detail unlike anywhere else in the world amongst any other people. And that, of course, is God's doing. So you can imagine, if you can't answer some of the questions from this, you aren't ever going to answer it from any other source. So it sort of becomes, I guess, a matter of, of common sense and interpolation between, between what you, the things that we read here. I think it's very important for us to remember, as I highlighted last time, that the purpose of the cities of refuge was primarily to express the fact that in the midst of life, there are going to be things that happen that were unintended and that have serious ramifications. And God knows that and God will deal with that. Nothing happens outside of the knowledge of God. This, the word or the phrase, city of refuge, contains a Hebrew word which can be translated asylum. And this Hebrew word is used only in the context of the city of refuge. In other words, when you read the word city of refuge, that word for refuge is unique to that phrase in Hebrew. And up to this time, it seems that the only place of refuge for someone who has inadvertently uh, violated the social norm and, of course, God's command by killing someone or doing something along that line, the only place of refuge was the altar of sacrifice. And we know that simply by tangential evidence. Let me turn to uh, Exodus chapter 21. You see, the scripture says nowhere, if you slay somebody, and it wasn't on purpose, flee to the altar of sacrifice. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. But apparently that was practiced because we read in Exodus 21, verse 12, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him, that is the one who, the victim, fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. So it's evident from that that people would flee to the altar, the bronze altar, where the sacrificial animals were burned outside of the tabernacle itself. Uh, that people would flee to that and grasp on as if, you know, they were finding sanctuary there. But if they're guilty, you're to drag them away even from that. But if, if they did not do it premeditatedly, then you were not to. So it was a kind of a sanctuary. And you see this concept passed down through history because whenever a tragedy strikes people, like, like a city is being uh, invaded, people will flee to the religious sanctuary. They will flee into the mosque or they will flee into the church, hoping that the invaders will honor the fact that this is a holy building and not hurt the people inside. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But in this case, of course, uh, we're talking about a true piece of equipment that was actually used for the worship of the genuine God. And therefore, it was no small thing to drag somebody away from the altar if he had fled there for, for sanctuary. And so it needed to be in accordance with God's word in order to even be able to do that. But now we're talking about a time when Israel is going to be scattered over about 12,000 square miles of land. And it would be impossible, very impractical for somebody to flee to one single place in the whole of Israel for, for sanctuary. 
So God has provided six places of refuge and scattered them so, as I mentioned to you last time, no one would be more than one, maybe two days away from the city of refuge. Now, of course, in those days, you couldn't say, oh, man, I killed this guy accidentally. Hop in your car and buzz off to the city of refuge, you know. You had to flee there on foot or on donkey back or whatever, you know. So it was no easy thing unless you were just three miles away from the city of refuge, you know. What I think is important here is we discover that God provides asylum for the sinner. And that is one of the primary messages of Scripture. God provides asylum. God is our asylum. In some ways, the city of refuge actually pictures God himself. You fled into the city of refuge, and if you were admitted to the city of refuge, the blood avenger could not lay his hand on you as long as you stayed within the confines of the city of refuge. We're reminded of this verse frequently, but let me just read it to you. The first verse of the 46th Psalm, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge. God is our strength. Twenty-five times in the Psalms, the psalmist uses the, the Hebrew word, which means to take refuge. And he uses it in every instance of God, to take refuge in God. David is one who used this a great deal. And David re refers to God as our refuge in many places. One of the places he does is in the second book of 2 Samuel, chapter 22. But what's interesting there is you find that that chapter is repeated in the 18th Psalm or vice versa, whichever way you want to look at it. Let me just read the first three verses of the 18th Psalm. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my, rock, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. I mean, those three verses we can take to heart and know that God is our fortress, our high tower, our refuge, anytime, anywhere, under any condition. God is our refuge. And as you read through that, the second verse, for example, says, my, the Lord is my rock. And then in the second phrase, it says, my God, my rock. Now, the word translated rock are two different words in that, that verse. The first word translated rock actually means high crag, you know, a lofty mountain pinnacle. And of course, in the ancient world, the safest place to build a city, if you could, was up on a crag someplace which had steep precipices on all sides. And if somehow you could have water up there, uh, you could be preserved from your enemies. It's a lot like Masada. If you've ever been to Israel and you've seen Masada, and you can see how it was the Jews could hold out against the most powerful army in the world at that time for, for three years on, on this, this, this craggy, what's well, actually a mesa, which has steep fall off on all sides. And that's what God is. The, the second word for rock in, in that second verse of uh, Psalm 18 is the standard word for rock, foundation, a, a solid rock. We sing that song, on Christ the solid rock we stand. And that is the implication in that particular word. 
41 times in the Psalms, there are several different Hebrew words which are used which demonstrate the absolute essential reality of the fact that God is our only refuge. God is our only refuge for time and eternity. There's no one else we go, can go to for sanctuary. You and I are guilty of sin against God. We are all worthy of, as it were, the blood avenger coming after us. But if we flee to Him, confessing our sin, He will give us refuge, asylum from the wages of sin. And that is the promise of Scripture, old and new. There's not a person born in this planet other than Jesus Christ Himself who was not worthy of death. The Scripture makes that so clear. And the only city of refuge for all of humanity is God Himself in Jesus Christ. Let me uh, read from 6th chapter of Hebrews, if I may. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus Christ has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That passage brings several things together for us here. I mean, God wanted us to know that He is our refuge. And of course, He demonstrated the... the um, the beginning of the plan as Christ came in, the in, in a pre-incarnate form in the, as, as Melchizedek, the, the priest. And, and in, the, in the verse it says, it, it tells us of the unchangeableness of his purpose. God is immutable. And this is where many people fail when it comes to really trying to understand Scripture. They, they kind of really lap up the New Testament and they hardly ever refer back to the Old Testament except where there's a psalm they want to look up, you know? Not realizing that the God who is the author of the Old is the God who is the author of the New. And, and what he said in the Old is just the same as he, what he says in the New. And I hope we've been able to see that through these many years now of looking at this. God has not evolved. This is the standard teaching in the secular schools today in world religions, and that is that religion evolves. If you've ever read Michener's book called The Source, which he wrote, I don't know, 30 years ago now, I don't remember how long it was, but in, in there he's, he's trying to talk about, you know, the background of the Hebrew nation and everything, and, and he basically has a description of the evolution of God. You know, how the God of Israel kind of evolved from some little old lowly mountain God over there somewhere, you know, some little tribal deity of some sort who just happened to evolve to be top God over all the other gods. That's why I, I you know, I cringe. I, not seriously so, because I understand, but that's why when I, when I sing, when, when, when people sing the song, Our God is an 
awesome God. I, I, I just say, no, 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 no. Get rid of the and and put a the in there. Our God is the awesome God. There isn't any other awesome God, which seems to even be applied by the word and. So God in his unchangeableness swore an oath and then by the fact that he cannot lie, these are two unchangeable things, immutable things, his oath and, and his absolute truth, by these testimonies we can know that whatever God has promised in the scripture that leads to our refuge is true. And so as we go on to the, the phrase at the end of verse 18, it says, who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us, this, of course, is, is premised on our understanding the word hope doesn't mean hope like I say, well, I sure hope tomorrow's a nice day. It's based on the word hope, which is an absolute certainty. Our hope, our anticipation, our looking forward to that which is certain, not, not just wished for. And to me, that's the tragedy of so many people who call themselves Christians today. And you've probably talked to people like that too, who say, well, I go to church and I sure hope I'll make it to heaven someday. Well, they're not using the hope this way. They're, they're saying, man, I really want to get there and you know, I, I hope it'll happen. But it's clear that God is our refuge and this hope is the anchor of our soul, it says here in Hebrews. Sure and steadfast. I mean, if I hope the weather is going to be a certain way tomorrow, that's not an anchor. That's not sure and steadfast. In fact, if I look, even if I listen to the weatherman, it's not sure and steadfast, you know. But this is. And of course, it ties the whole issue together of Jesus being the one who could pass through the veil and stand before the Holy of Holies as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which, of course, to the Hebrews had a profound impact. For us today, we, we, we think, well, yeah, it must have been pretty significant to go behind the veil. <laughs> you know, it was so amazing to them and such an awesome thing to go behind the veil, which the high priest could do only once a year. And I sure wouldn't want to bend the high priest going before through that veil if I hadn't gotten my life together in prayer to God well ahead of time, you know, done my sacrifices and everything else and made sure that I had repented of everything. Well, let's read on in the 21st chapter of Joshua. First eight verses. Then the heads of the household of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. Then the lot, <coughs> excuse me, then the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites. And the sons of Aaron the priest, who were of the Levites, received thirteen cities by Lot from the tribe of Judah and from the tribes of the, of the Simeonites and from the tribe of Benjamin. And the rest of the sons of Kohath received ten cities by Lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim and from the tribe of Dan and from the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the sons of Gershon received thirteen cities by Lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. And the sons of Merari, according to their families, received twelve cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, from the tribe of Zebulon. Now the sons of Israel gave by lot to the Levites these cities with their pasture lands, as the Lord commanded through Moses. 
this whole chapter deals with the allotment of 48 cities to the tribe of Levi. The other tribes had to have already received their inheritances for them to then give up cities from within their inheritance to the tribe of Levi. Since each of the tribes would be giving up at least one, in many cases multiple city, cities, because obviously if you have 12 tribal lands, you have 48 cities, 12 goes into 48 four times, that would be an average of four cities per tribe, but some cities, uh, some tribes were smaller, gave up less, some tribes were larger, gave up more. The members of the three Levite clans were to be dispersed throughout the whole land of Israel. And we're told in this passage, first of all, that the Kohathites, which was one of the three clans of the Levite tribe, were to be given 23 cities. And these 23 cities would be spread throughout the southern part of Canaan, Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, Dan, Ephraim, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So that's everywhere from approximately the middle of what would be Samaria on down to the southern end of Israel. So that's where the Kohathites would be. Now the largest family inside the clan of Kohath, Kohath was the family of Aaron, through whom the high priesthood would be passed. So they received, we're told in this passage, 13 of the 23 cities. So 13 cities would belong to the family of Aaron, and then the other families within the clan of Kohath would receive the other 10 cities. What is interesting is that the Aaron, the Aaronic cities were all in the south. The Aaronic cities were from Benjamin to Judah to Simeon. And what's further interesting is that at least two of the Aaronic cities were cities of significance, one of them being Hebron. Hebron, which, which was the city that was, was uh, taken you know, by Caleb, uh, where the giants had been. Hebron that had been Kiriath Arba before, named for a clan chief of the giants. Hebron, which would be a city of refuge. Hebron, which would eventually be the capital of David the king. So it was not an insignificant place. That would be a Levite city, and so would Gibeon. Now, what problems might there be associated with, being, with Gibeon being a Levite city? Well, just maybe the problem of all the Gibeonites who were living there, you remember? They're the ones who came up with all the dried up bread and beat up costumes and said, hey, we're from far away, and, and they were the next ones down the line. So the Gibeons were still there. So the Levite, the, a Levitical city was a city in which you still had a pagan population, or I should say a non-Israel population. Hopefully they became converted because they would be living amongst those who demonstrated the faith maybe more than other Israelites did. Secondly, we have the clan of the Gershonites, and they were to be given 13 cities way up in the north, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and one-half Manasseh. So they were at the northern end of Galilee and slopped over into Transjordan. And then the smallest of the clans, the Merarites, were given 12 cities that stretched as you see here, from Zebulon over there near the Sea of Galilee, and then down into Gad and Reuben on the east side in Transjordan. Now from this, we it, it can interpret the fact that the Kohathites were probably the largest clan because they received 23 cities, whereas the Merarites, who only received 12 cities, were probably the smallest clan. Now, why were the Levites so scattered? I mean, if the tabernacle was at Shiloh, 
Why weren't they just encamped within the region of Shiloh? So it'd be easy for them to get there and do their monthly duty as, as Levites and priests and then go home and the next monthly group would come in, you know, the next shift would come in. Why, um, why were they so widely scattered? For some of them, to go to Shiloh was going to be a real trip. You know, you go way up there in the north, you know, up around Lake Hulog on the slopes of Mount Hermon, you got all the way down to Shiloh. Well, there were two primary reasons, I think, for the scattering. The first, which is the lesser reason, was that no tribe would suffer an unfair loss of cities. Because obviously, if they collected right around Shiloh, Ephraim would have to give up most of the territory to, to the to Levites. And that, because Ephraimites weren't given that large a piece of land, uh, would have been an unfair burden on them. So every tribe gave up at least one city. And most tribes gave up several cities in order for the Levites to live. So, so that was an act of fairness, of justice. But secondly, and I believe more importantly, was that they would be the salt of Israel. They would salt the society. They would be scattered throughout all of Israel so that every tribe would have the positive influence of those who had just come back from serving the Lord for a month at Shiloh. I, it probably shouldn't be this way, but it's probably true. Well, maybe sometimes it's not. But, you know, after we've had a glorious service at church, we might go out with a little more glow and be a little more positive influence on people around us than on Friday morning or Monday morning maybe. Uh, when we go out in the world and we kind of look like a thundercloud and act like one too, you know. And so the, the priests and the Levites who were associated with carrying on the service of the Lord for a month came back and, and they would glow with the presence of God and the surrounding tribal people would, would be invigorated to be, and be reminded of who they served. You serve Yahweh. So I think as kind of salt for the people, this was a major reason they were scattered all over through every tribe. In the case of each location, the Levites were not only to be given the town, but the land right around the town. This we were told clear back in, in Numbers chapter 35. Read a passage there in Numbers 35 beginning at verse 4. And the pasture lands of the cities which you shall give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. You shall also measure outside the city on each side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side 2,000, on the west side 2,000, on the north side 2,000, with the city at the center. And this shall become theirs as pasture lands for the cities. And the cities which you shall give to Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to, and in addition to them you shall give 42 cities. All the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities, together with their pasture lands. As for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger and less, and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession which he inherits. Over and over again, what do we keep finding? God is just. God is just. Even in the little things of life, God is just. Now, you and I face in injustice because although God is just, the world is not just and the devil is definitely not just. And even like the passage that we read earlier where, where it said that uh, somebody who 
killed someone uh, without it being premeditated was, was to have refuge. And it said, even if the Lord brings somebody along whom you accidentally kill, the Lord brings somebody along. The it's, it actually says the Lord allows him to fall into his hands, which means, you know, the scripture says not even a sparrow drops out here without the Lord knowing it. So nobody dies on this planet without the Lord knowing it. And the Lord has allowed it. And of course, we can get into a big, long discussion and even maybe argument <laughs> relative to the will of God, you know, the active will of God and the passive will of God and whatever else you want to call it. We won't do that here. <laughs> I rest in the sovereignty of God. That doesn't mean I should not act in accordance with His word and His will and be active uh, salt in this decaying world. But if things happen that I cannot explain and seem to be in violation of God's will, we have to understand God has allowed it. I mean, we, we think about, you know, why, why would God allow, let's say, somebody who's been used mightily to be struck dead? Like the five missionaries who were carrying the gospel to the Alka Indians. Of course, today we can explain that by the thousands of missionaries who have gone out because they've been challenged by the death of those people. But was that the only reason God allowed it? Why? Well, I don't know. I think the infinite mind of God is unfathomable by us, and that's not a cop-out. The world will say it is. Oh, well, that's just a cop-out because you say you can't explain it because God's bigger than you. Well, I mean, <laughs> there's a point at which we have to admit that we are not all-powerful and that we are not all-knowing, even though many scholars today won't admit to that. I, I think in this passage what we're finding is that the Levites were to be given enough land around the city that belonged to them that they could pasture the sheep and the goats and the cattle which belonged to them. Because although they would receive a portion of the contributions and the sacrifices in serving the Lord at the tabernacle, they still needed to meet their needs scattered all over the countryside because they only went to the tabernacle one month out of the year. And there were no refrigerators in those days. So you couldn't carry home enough meat to feed your family for the rest of the year from that one. It wouldn't be any good anyway. So, so they had to have their own sheep and their own cattle and their own goats to provide for themselves. Now, the grain would be preserved and could be preserved. Uh, and so that wasn't, they, they didn't need enough land for, for actual um, crops because they would be supplied from the Levitical portion. Cities of refuge were to be Levitical cities. This avoided the injustice that could arise from a city of refuge belonging, let's say, to Asher and somebody of Naphtali wanting to flee there. There could be an intertribal rivalry. There could be bad blood between the two tribes where they'd say, it's our city of refuge and you get out of here. You can't come here because you're not of our tribe. No, it was a Levitical city. It was open to all, whether he was from Judah or Gad or Dan or whatever tribe he was from. He could flee to any one of the six cities of refuge. Now, what's very interesting about this, if you look it up, you'll discover that each of the three clans within the Le Levite tribe, within the Levite tribe, were these three clans we just talked about, Kohath, Gershom, and Merari. Each of those clans possessed two of the cities of refuge. Two cities of refuge were within the territory, within the city possessions of each of the three clans of Merari. So you see how God distributes how God is just, and it is man that comes along and creates injustice. That is, to me, one of the most powerful testimonies 
of the veracity of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation because it just reeks with the justice of God. Social justice, economic justice, as well as spiritual justice. Well, let me just read the... Uh, we are not going to read through the 21st chapter because all it does is say to the tribe of Koath were... and then it starts listing all the cities of the 48. You know, so it is a big long list of 48 cities and their lands, and it's constantly rep repetitious. Not that it isn't important, it would be important to the Hebrews, maybe more than to us, but we won't read it. But I do want us to read the last three verses of the chapter, verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. Now this is an important passage to study in spite of the fact it looks pretty straightforward. It is not straightforward. Not that God isn't speaking straightly, but what I'm saying is, how does this match with reality? Because it says all of their enemies were given into their hands. All of God's promises were fulfilled. And yet, when you look at the details, you discover there were enemies living all over the land. So how could it be that all their enemies were given into their hands, and yet all, many, many of the enemies still lived within the land? Well, there's a logic to it. And we don't have time today to develop that. So we'll look at that next Sunday and see how that all played out.